The plight of German Jewry was obviously very difficult during the mid-1930s. However, it wasn't until 1938 that things took a real drastic turn for the worse. First with the Anschluss with Austria, and then with Kristallnacht in November. In this class, we're going to look at FDR's response to Kristallnacht and the various solutions and options and ideas that FDR and the United States in general thought of in terms of response to these atrocities. First with the ideas of resettlement as well as ideas of rescue. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Meth. Um, I want to begin with, you know, as, as we really move uh, to today's class, part three. Today's class, we're going to review some of what we did towards the end of last week's session. We're really going to begin in 1938 with Kristallnacht and the real beginning of the I guess what we'd call the early stages of the Holocaust um, and FDR's response and the American response in general. Um, we're not going to get, I, I think we're probably going to get to about 1940, 1941 today. And then next week we'll, we'll do the end of the war. Um, that's the plan. Um, I just want to, as a way of introduction, is I, I shared this idea a couple of weeks ago at the explanatory service. Um, which everyone should be aware of. We give the we have the user friend, the explanatory service Shabbat morning Saturday mornings nine forty five here. It's a lot of fun. Um, an idea we shared um, uh, maybe two months ago that I think is really germane to today's discussion. I, I want to read um, a passage, an excerpt from Martin Luther. Who's Martin Luther? Martin Luther is Luther. of Lutherism, right? He is the Founds the Protestant movement in Germany in whatever year that is, 15 something, 31, 15, let me see what it says, 1525. I was close. Here's what Martin Luther writes in one of his, and I believe in his book, The Jews and Their Lies, which you can already get a sense is not going to be a very Jewish friendly book. What shall we Christians do with the Jews? First, we set fire to their synagogues or schools. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that the rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews, for they have no business in the countryside. Sixth, I advise that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them. Seventh, I recommend putting a flail, an axe, a hoe, a spade, a distaff, or a spindle into the hands of the young, strong Jews and Jewesses and let them earn their bread in the sweat of their brow. If we are afraid that they might harm us, let us emulate the common sense of other nations such as France, Spain, and Bohemia and inject them forever from the country. Okay, those lovely words, those charming words written by Martin Luther in 1525. I, I shared a verse. There is a passage in the Torah. It's towards the end of the... Towards the end of the Torah, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 3, chapter 30, which I strongly encourage. Deuteronomy chapter 30 is, you know, there aren't more important chapters in the Torah. They're all equally important. If you're going to read one chapter in the Torah, I encourage you to read chapter 30 in Deuteronomy. It's a very powerful chapter. Chapter 30 is all about the idea. Let me just let in. It's about the concept of reward and punishment, right and wrong, and the very deeply Jewish idea that, 
and let me just hit this, the very deep Jewish idea that none of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. But in Judaism, the fundamental idea in Judaism is the concept of tshuva, repentance. In, in Judaism, we believe person sins, you're not doomed to hell. You're not damned for eternal purgatory. In Judaism, we believe there is accountability and responsibility for our actions. We also believe in Sadiq there is no righteous person on earth who only does what's right and never sins. Everyone makes mistakes. We believe that in Judaism. Judaism acknowledges, Judaism believes there's a concept called tshuva, repentance. You can ask God for forgiveness. And that's really one, one of the major themes of Deuteronomy in general, but specifically Deuteronomy chapter 30. There's a verse that says, when a person is repenting, uh, should return in your heart. And then the verse says in verse 2, you should return to God, repent to God, return. We should listen to his ways. Like everything that I command you today, you and your children with all of your heart and all your soul. And you go ahead and we realize, you know what, God, I've made mistakes. I'm not perfect. So we go before God and we're going to return. We're going to say, you know what, God, I'm going to try to improve. I ask you for forgiveness. I'm sorry. I'm going to try to do better. With all your heart and with all your soul, we say, I'm sorry, God. And we ask God for forgiveness. It's interesting. There's an interesting word or, or clause in the verse. It says, Ata, you should return, Ufanecha, and your children. Now, what does that mean? Explains Ramban, Rabbi Moshe Nachmanides, writing in the 1200s in Spain. He explains what that means is when a person is committed and recommits to God, says, you know what, God, I'm, I apologize, I ask for forgiveness for my, my mistakes, and I'm planning on changing my ways, and I'm going to improve. It's not enough to just go ahead and say, you know what, I'm going to be better. I'm going to improve. I'm going to, you know, be more observant, be more careful, be more connected to God. You know, that's great, but that's not enough. We also have to accept upon ourselves and our children. When we go ahead and we say, God, I want to recommit to you. We also have to commit for myself and for my children and for all the generations to come. That's how Ramban, Rabbi Moshe Nachmanides explains that when we go ahead and we recommit to God, it's got to be a generational commitment. Great. I've always found it interesting is, is that a game? You know, I hereby declare that I'm going to be recommitted to God, but not just me, not just my kids, but their kids and those kids' kids 10 generations down the line. How, what does that even mean? How can a person commit their family generationally to be connected to God? And the answer, I believe, is that if that's something that's on our mind, the actions that we do, the commitments, the feelings, the attitudes, the beliefs that we have, if we go ahead and we are aware of the fact that our actions inspire others, our actions can go ahead and influence others. So recognize if, yes, if we go ahead and we commit to God today, it can have a generational impact. It can go ahead and inspire your kids who in turn will inspire your grandkids, who in turn will go ahead and inspire your great-grandkids, and you can create a chain that goes many, many, many generations. And I really believe that that's a real, a real idea. That really, really happens. Um, and it doesn't just happen for the good, as Ramban, Ramoshan Ahmadis, explains this verse, it's our commitment to God, but tragically, it also works in the reverse. And I want to read, this is, you know, I've been 
a book that I couldn't recommend higher enough. This is the book if you want to study Nazi Germany and what life was like and what it was. It's The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by uh, William, William Shire. This is the book. And in the beginning of the book, page 236, he writes the following. It is difficult to understand the behavior of most German Protestants in the first Nazi years, unless one is aware of two things, their history and the influence of Martin Luther. And here he puts a footnote, footnote, which is worth reading. To avoid any misunderstanding, it might be well to point out here that the author is a Protestant. So this is not coming from any place of bias, what he's about to argue. The great founder of the Protestantism was both a passionate anti-Semite and a ferocious believer in absolute obedience to political authority. He wanted Germany to rid the Jews, and when they were sent away, he advised that they be deprived of all their cash and jewels and silver and gold, and furthermore, that their synagogues be set on fire, as we read. Advice that was literally followed four centuries later by Hitler, Goering, and Himmler. And what was perhaps the only popular revolt in German history, okay, the influence of this towering figure extended down in the gener- extended ge- down the generations in Germany, especially among the Protestants. Among other results was the ease with which German Protestants became the instrument of royal and princely absolutism. Um, and he goes on to you know develop the idea. You know this is Shire's theory. He got a lot of flack for that. That's probably the most controversial passage of this entire book. But I believe he's absolutely right. He argues, you want to know how Germany can turn to such a monstrous country and, you know, commit the most unimaginable crimes against humanity. This didn't just happen overnight. It didn't come out of nowhere. It came from a history of rabid anti-Semitism. Luther, again, was from Germany, you know, and that, you know, made its way down generationally and left its mark. And you have one anti-Semite, some person who has some perverse and horrible attitudes towards the world in the year 1525, fast forward to the year 1925, you know, and those attitudes are still there. And that should be a lesson for us, you know, not just a reflection on a historical, you know, uh, you know, tragedy, but it should be an inspiration for us. You know, we all want to be good people. We all want to make a difference. We all are looking to improve. Recognize that our actions, our attitudes, our beliefs, the things that we do today, you know, they do make a difference. And 400 years from now, something we don't really think of, our actions have, you know, millennial, you know, capacity for for impact. And that's a powerful idea. I want to just continue, not where we left off last week, but I want to back up and kind of review some of the things that we did towards the very end um, last week. So far, has there been any thoughts, questions before we go on? Everyone good? Doc's got a thought. Just talking about... Anti-Semitism in Germany wasn't anti-Semitism in France and Russia much greater than in Germany during the 18th, early 19th. Yes, well, France would in the late 1800s have you know the Dreyfus Affair. Eastern Europe, in particular, was a rabidly anti-Semitic um, place. Poland, Ukraine, and these were places that they weren't Protestant. Those were Poland was certainly Catholic. Russia, Russia had again centuries of, of anti-Semitism. Um, again, he's specifically talking about Germany, not to the exclusion of other countries, but yes, your point is well taken. It's not that Germany was bad and everywhere else was good. As a matter of fact, in the 1800, 19th century, Germany was the best place of the best countries for Jews. And, and, and which makes, in a way, in a sense, highlights Shire's point, makes it even deeper. 
In the early in the 1800s, in the early 1900s, if you'd ask any reasonable person what was a better place for a Jew to live, you know, Poland or Germany, you know, 100 out of 100 people would say Germany. And Jews were had citizenship. Jews were emancipated. You know, Jews lived. Yet Jews lived. You know, fairly normal lives. You could go to college. I mean, Poland was a it was a, a backwards country. The backwards country where the you know the anti-Semitism was everywhere. But even with that, Shire's point holds. And that's why it's it's such a remarkable insight and something that should really be an inspiration to all of us. March 12, 1938, we discussed last, last week is the beginning of the Anschluss. We discussed at the end of the, the end of our discussion last week. That's when Hitler really begins his quest in an active way for world domination. He goes ahead and he essentially he uh, he annexes Austria, which was an independent co- country. Now Hitler was born in in Austria. Okay, he was Austrian, although he had a very strange connection to Austria, a love hate relationship. But he annexes Austria again. His motive is Lebensraum. Germany needs more space, and the Anschluss um, Austria becomes part of Germany, which goes ahead. And now you have another 175,000 Jews who find themselves in peril. I just want to reiterate, in 1938, this is before the final solution. Jews are not being executed yet. The Holocaust has not yet really begun, but the anti-Semitism, the rabid anti-Semitism of the Nazis is very, very, very apparent. Um, We talked about FDR's attempt, uh, you know, his general attitude towards opening immigration in the United States, we have discussed, again, immigration was totally squished. No one was allowed into the country and all the obstacles and impossibilities for Jews to get in. We talked about how during the 30s, even with the quotas, you know, which were so low, they were hardly filled. They were 10, filled 10%, 20%. And after the Anschluss, FDR, to his credit, really, pre- he doesn't increase the immigration quotas, but he allows them to be filled. So in 1938, the full quota of 27,000 people are able to come to the United States. We talked about as, um, you know, shortly after the Anschluss, FDR puts together the Evian Conference. And I just want to talk about that in a little bit more depth. The Evian Conference was one of two, and it was certainly the most important conference, international conference, which whereby um, different nations, it was an international conference where nations came together to try to figure out active ways, how can we go ahead and um, how can we go ahead and solve you know, the, the problem, the refugee crisis? Um, many people were opposed to it. Sumner Wells um, was of the few people in the State Department who was actually okay with it. Um, that was that was the Evian conference. We talked about how the results of the Evian conference were catastrophic. None of the countries, no one was really interested in helping the Jews. Right? We talked about Australia famously saying, you know, and they their response to would you open up your immigration to allow Jews, you know, to get out of, of persecution? They said, we don't have a Jewish problem and we don't want a Jewish problem. So thank you, but no thank you. And that was the attitude of almost every country. You mentioned there was one country, the Dominican Republic. They were the one country that in theory opened up their doors and would allow 100,000 Jews to, um, to enter, but nothing happened. Um, Golda Meir, 
would go on to be a prime minister of, of the state of Israel, was actually at, if I recall correctly, she was, I believe, my note, she was at the Evian conference, but wasn't allowed to, she represented Palestine. And she described her outrage being in the ludicrous capacity as the Jer- yes, of the Jewish observer from Palestine, not even seated with the delegates, although the refugees under discussion were my own people. She was brought as a delegate, but her voice, her opinion wasn't, wasn't, uh, wasn't heard. The Evian conference was a catastrophe. Nothing happened. The most important thing to come out of the Avion conference was that Hitler was an astute observer of the world. And he noticed and noted the indifference of the world around him. The complete silence of the international community to do anything to help the plight of the Jews. And Hitler wrote, would say the following publicly. I don't think so. No, the Evian conference was closed, was, was, no, that would be Bermuda was closed to the press. Uh, it could be, but it, was, it wasn't a secret conference. It wasn't done in secret. Hitler would offer, uh, would say the following. Uh, I can only hope and expect that the other world, meaning everyone outside of Germany, which has such deep sympathy for these criminals, the Jews, will at least be generous enough to convert this sympathy into practical aid. We, on our part, are ready to put all these criminals on, at the disposal of these countries, for all I care, even on luxury ships, which is an astute observation. You want the Jews? I'll put them on cruise liners. Take them. No one's interested? Okay. Hitler noted that. No one was interested. We talked about, I think we ended last week, we talked about, um, you know, after the Anschluss of Vienna, so in March of 1938, Hitler begins his next power grab, his next land grab, by essentially eating up Czechoslovakia. Now, if you recall, the story is, in theory, Czechoslovakia had a treaty. It was a very complicated treaty with Great Britain, who had a treaty with France, who in theory had a treaty with the Soviet Union to defend Czechoslovakia's independence. Now, no one was interested in a world war. Europe was not interested in the world war. The United States was certainly not interested in the world war, as we've discussed. This was the height of isolationism in the United States. We're not interested in foreign affairs. Great Britain really didn't want to get into a a Cold War. And the, the policy of Neville Chamberlain, who was the prime minister at the time, the policy was, the policy called appeasement, which sounds like a, you know, kind of whip argument, appeasement, you know, stand up for, your, for yourself, you know, fight. It wasn't considered a pejorative. This was considered a real strategy to deal with Hitler. You know, he'd be very proud. Yes, we're appeasing Hitler. And after a lot of diplomatic um, back and forth, where Hitler basically railroads Neville, Neville Chamberlain, um, he, he's very clear he wants to eat up, he wants to annex Czechoslovakia. And again, Czechoslovakia is begging Great, Great Britain and Neville Chamberlain, come to our aid. Um, and Neville Ch- Chamberlain signs the Munich Pact, peace in our time. And he goes ahead and he feels like he comes up with a diplomatic solution. And indeed, Hitler swallows up Czechoslovakia as well. Again, endangering all the Jews of Prague, all the Jews that live in Czechoslovakia, and they were many. This is in March of 1938. In Chicago, there was a woman, from, a Jewish woman from Czechoslovakia, 
who is in the United States on a, on a travel visa. And when she heard about Hitler's invasion of Czechoslovakia and she understood the United States, you know, immigration policy, she knew she was doomed. And she jumped off the top of a building in Chicago with her child committing suicide. This got a lot of press attention and FDR even heard about it. And FDR went ahead and he changed, he basically allowed anyone who was in the United States from Czechoslovakia on a travel visa would be allowed to stay as a refugee. He didn't send them back. Um, He didn't send them back to Czechoslovakia. Now, as we've said repeatedly, we have to remember FDR was under incredible pressure from the isolationists. People did not want immigrants to the United States for a variety of reasons. We talked about xenophobia. People were just bigoted. Number two, this is still in the Great Depression. Immigrants mean more competition for jobs. So people just simply didn't want more immigrants, certainly not Jews. And then there was always the the latent anti-Semitism, the casual anti-Semitism that was around. Interesting, you know, and by the way, the concept, the policy of appeasement towards Hitler, you know, it was very well accepted by, you know, again, I would call them cowards, but by many. One famous American politician was a big, uh, you know, a big supporter of appeasement would be Joseph Kennedy, father of JFK, who was certainly no fan of the Jews, to say the least. Uh, Joseph Kennedy, not, not so much John F. Kennedy. November 9th, 1938 is Kristallnacht. This is really when the terror uh, against, Judea- against Jews in Germany really begins. So pogrom, we all know the story of, of Kristallnacht. Kristallnacht takes place days after the midterm elections in the United States, 1938, November 1938. The Republicans did well. Uh, the Democrats did not do well. So again, FDR is, is in a, you know, and, and this is, I want to repeat this point over and over. FDR, I believe, cared for the plight of the Jews, but he didn't care about the plight of the Jews more than his political interests. And that's going to be the recurring theme about FDR. And again, we have a lot of opinions on that. Um, We talked about, I think we alluded to last week, how they're after Kristallnacht. Now, Kristallnacht was covered in in the press. You know, the later subsequent atrocities of of what was going on in Germany would not be. The horrors of Kristallnacht was a big story. It was on the front pages of the papers for actually quite a while. And it did, it did attract a lot of attention. Um, after November 1938, you know, the, the real crisis and peril of the Jewish situation in Germany and now the, the growing influence of the Nazis under their domination really becomes an issue. It's at this time, after Kristallnacht, almost as a response to this, FDR, um, who again is not willing to push the immigration issues too far, comes up with a bunch of, or tries to come up with a bunch of schemes for resettlement of the Jews, not necessarily in the United States, but in other places. Okay? One of the most interesting um, plans that he came up with, now there's going to be one commonality with all of these plans. None of them were. They were all ill-conceived, very poorly planned, and none of them were. One of the plans of all things was to have the Jews settle in Alaska. Alaska was the United States territory at the time. It's not a, it's not a state. It's a territory. 
So the immigration rules weren't quite the same for a United States territory. Um, so this was a real proposal right after Kristallnacht, two weeks after Kristallnacht. This was a proposal by Harold Ickes, who was the he was the Secretary of the Interior. He proposed the use of Alaska as a haven for Jewish refugees from Germany and other areas in Europe where Jews are subject to oppressive restrictions. Um, Stephen Wise, who we've talked about, I'm no big fan of, he felt it was a wrong and hurtful impression that Jews are taking over some part of the country for settlement. He was against it. He thought it would, it would send bad vibes. It would look like, oh, here the Jews are coming and we're taking over Alaska. He thought it would go ahead and send a bad impression. So he was against it. Um, Roosevelt never mentioned the Alaska project in public. Um, and the plan basically died. It fizzled. But could have been a salvation. There were some thoughts of, of colonizing some of the, the barren places in Africa, but it was very expensive. They estimated at over $5,000 a person. Um, we mentioned the idea of the Dominican Republic, but that never panned out. Only 700 Jews would make it to the Dominican Republic. Uh, Costa Rica, of all countries, Bolivia, um, their talks of settle, resettling Jews in Bolivia, um, they would be of, of Latin, Latin America was a real, um, that was considered a real possibility. Different countries in Latin America and Bolivia would actually end up uh, absorbing over 20,000 Jews between 38 and 41. Um, Chile took 8,000 Jews, Brazil, about 10,000 Jews. Between 1938 and 1942, all these schemes uh, totaled to about 60,000 Jews would make it to, to Latin American countries. Most of the, those Jews only stay there temporarily. Um, they would go there and then, you know, would move on afterwards. I knew many Jews from Costa Rica. You know, my mom had, has a good friend who is from Costa Rica, who is from this, this exodus. 60,000 Jews is not a lot considering the numbers, but it's not, the important thing and what makes, I keep on mentioning, what makes FDR such a confusing person is 60,000 is not a lot, but it's not zero. If he didn't care at all, that number should have been, could have and should have been zero. So you see, there's a little bit of concern, but not a ton which again, makes him such an enigma. We had a question. Yes, I had friends who went to Singapore. There were a lot of people. Singapore? Okay, uh, yes. could be. Yeah. When we were in China and Singapore, we actually went into the Council Temple. Um, the, uh, again, one of the best books that I, I rely on heavily for this class, FDR and the Jews. So Brightman and Lichtman argue that the way they sum up all these plans was that resettlement plans in Latin America were poorly conceived, badly man managed. Uh, some diplomats and State Department officials simply refused to consider resettlement as consistent with the interests of the United States. One of the countries that was involved in these potential resettlement plans was Cuba. Now, Cuba was obviously was and is a very complicated place, but Cuba actually did open up several visas um, for resettlement. And it's connected to Cuba where you have, you know, one of the, it's a well-known story. I want to take a moment just to talk about, and that's the story of the St. Louis. The St. Louis the, was a boat, was an ocean liner. The St. Louis set sail from, let's say it was from Barcelona, or I'm not sure where, but it had mainly German Jews, 937 Jews with transit visas, Many of them to Cuba, many of them to Venezuela. 
And they actually, these 937 Jews were somehow able to get, now these were transit visas. These weren't permanent visas. These were transit visas or travel visas. They would be allowed to go visit and, you know, go golfing in Venezuela or Cuba. Many of these visas, the, cap, the captain on the boat who, you know, who was responsible to authorizing and authenticating these visas, many of them were illegal or forged, which we talked about last week, which is absolutely the right thing to do. If you're trying to escape the horrors of Nazi Germany, you forge and you, you know, make you know, visas. In any event, the St. Louis leaves Europe and heads to Cuba in June of 1937, but en route, the visas, again, most of them were legitimate, but in any event, the, the visas got canceled. Venezuela, I believe it was Venezuela is what I recall, canceled the visas. So here you have 930, almost the entirety of the group, these 937 people on this boat called the St. Louis are functionally now stateless. Because again, Germany stripped them of their citizenship. They had visas to get to, to Venezuela through Cuba, um, but those visas got canceled. So what happens? It eventually, the St. Louis would go to Florida. Um, there's a lot of misinformation um, on what exactly happened. They look, they tried many organizations. One of the many of the relief Jewish relief organizations. At this point, there's a very important Jewish. Uh, organization called the Joint. Have you ever heard of the Joint? Remember the Joint? The Joint Committee was essentially you have all these big Jewish um, organizations that are trying to aid relief efforts, refugee efforts. And I, I think it was like 37 or 38, maybe even earlier. Um, they basically, some of the, the, the bigger ones came together and decided to work, instead of working against one another, which was always a problem of the Jewish organizations throughout this period, sadly would be the infighting within all these organizations and not speaking with one voice. We're going to speak a lot about that next week when we talk about the, the, the big disagreements between Wise and Peter Berkson, who's going to be a very important person. But in any event, one organization was put together. It was a, it was a joint committee. It was a bunch of organizations working together. It was called the joint. Everyone called the joint. So the joint was influential trying to solve what are these 937 um, where are these 937 refugees um, going to go? So the, the, the urban legend has it is that the Coast Guard sent, you know, a, 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 like a cutter or a destroyer and started firing warning shots at, at the St. Louis as it's trying to, to, to you know, get to port in, in uh, New York or Florida. I, I don't think that's true. I don't think that part is true. There was a movie made about the St. Louis called The Voyage of the Dam, which is, I haven't seen it, but from what I've heard is that it's good, but it's historically inaccurate. The Voyage of the Dam, in the movie, they say, what ends up happening, this is what happened, only a handful of people are able to get out of, you know, are able to, to their visas actually were squared away, but the bulk of them, I think not almost the entire majority, end up going back to Europe. St. Louis has to turn back to Europe and they all get killed. Okay, it's not quite the case of the, the they claim 600 died. That's probably not true. What ended up happening was largely due to the joint NFDR, they were able to come up with an agreement whereby Belgium, France, Great Britain, and the Netherlands would divide these passengers up. Now, if you ended up in Belgium, France, or the Netherlands, you know, that would be very, very bad. But it should be noted 
that at the time in June of 39, um, this was still considered, and the passengers on board viewed this as a good agreement. They were satisfied. They again, the war, the Europe was not at war yet. They would be in a few months, but Germany was still Germany. The World War II had not yet started, and many viewed this as a, as a satisfactory solution. Now, to the best of, you know, I think the data shows, 254 of these passengers did end up dying um, in, in, in concentration camps. Um, and, and that is, it's a, it's a horrific tragedy. And again, it should be noted, Hitler saw what had happened. Hitler saw this boat with refugees coming to the United States and no one caring, and then being sent back to harm's way. Question. I think in Venezuela at the time, I believe it was in Venezuela, they got can they got canceled. They decided they were not going to accept them anymore. Yeah, yeah. Those people cannot come in here. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I want to take a moment to, I want to now shift to the next part of our story, which was you know, we talked about, and, and uh, Doc had asked, what about all the anti-Semites in the United States? Well, what was going on in the United States? Now, again, most of the country, I would argue, was indifferent to the plight of the Jews. Most of the country were preoccupied with their own woes um, from the Great Depression. There was the casual anti-Semitism that was just part of life, I hope and pray that the average person, you know, if they had casual anti-Semitic feelings, they probably weren't deeply rooted, but most people were just indifferent. That's probably the bulk of the United States. There was, however, a loud voice off to the right or the left or wherever you want to call it, of people who were just out and out anti-Semites who would be very influential um, throughout this period. And I want to talk about, about what was going on in FDR's response to these, gr to these groups. Um, I want to recommend a book, which I got from the library right here, about halfway through. It's a good book. Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich's Supporters in the United States by Bradley Hart. Uh, the cover is, is a striking cover. This is a the, talk about the front cover. Jacket photograph is a German-American bun rally, which we're going to talk about in 1937. There were lots of groups and individuals who were influencers during this time. The first was a fellow named William, William Pelly, who found an organization called the Silver Shirts, um, who actively promoted the forcible removal of Jews from power. Um, Pelly was an admirer of Hitler, and he founded the Silver Shirts, the Silver Legion, which was an anti Semitic organization whose members. Wore, wore Nazi-style silver uniform shirts. Their insignia was a scarlet L emblazoned with their flags and uniforms. Their membership by 1935 was close to 15,000 people. These were openly anti-Semitic um, members who admired Hitler. And he was a very loud voice. You had Gerald Winrod of Kansas, uh, known as the Jayhawk Nazi. I like the nickname. Don't like the guy. Um, he put out a newspaper, The Defender, uh, which planned to battle the hidden hand of the Jewish conspiracy. Um, he was a big believer and he pushed about the, you know, the protocols, the elders of Zion, 
um, which if you're not familiar is the uh, you know, most notorious anti-Semitic books ever written in the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s. And his, one of his essays, one of his books was called The Truth About the Protocols, um, which was essentially a book arguing about the authenticity about the Protocols of the Elder of Zion. And he would write, after observing the title of this book, some will accuse me of being anti-Semitic. If by this they mean that I am opposed to the Jews as a race or as a religion, I deny the allegation. But if they mean that I am opposed to a, to a group of international Jewish bankers ruling the Gentile world by power of gold, if they mean that I am opposed to international Jewish communism, then I plead guilty to the charge. Right? You saw that little hedge. It's almost like reminiscent. Uh, you know, you see that today. I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm just anti-Zionist. Oh, okay. Like there's a difference. Right? I'm not anti I'm not against Jews as a race. I'm just against Jews. Oh, okay. All right. Like that, that, that's that constant theme. Now, and, and it's worth pointing out most of these anti Semitic groups and individuals um, at this time are going to be constantly accusing the Jews of being the communists. Now, were many communists Jews? Yes. Were many Jews communists? Yes. Were all Jews communists? Obviously not. We're all communist Jews. Obviously not. But there were certainly some communists that were Jews, and there certainly were some Jews that were communists. It, it, that certainly was the case. Um, the far right, I guess you would call these, but it, it, hard to put them necessarily to the right. There were these vocal anti-Semites were very, they would always couch their terms by being against communism. As we're going to see when World War II, later on in World War II, Hitler hated communism. And many of these Hitler sympathizers, the reason why they were sympathetic to Hitler is because they viewed and they admired Hitler's anti-communistic viewpoints and attitudes. So like to us, like how could someone be like, you know, admire Hitler or, you know, put Hitler on a pedestal. The reason is, is because Hitler, you know, was violently anti-communist. So it was a great way of saying, you know, I'm not anti-Jewish, I'm anti-communist. And that's why I admire Hitler. Now, obviously, you know, it doesn't work that way, but that's where a lot of this is, is going to be coming from. When you're going to, when you're going to see, you know, as he, so he believed that FDR was a devil linked to the Jewish communist conspiracy. You'll see this theme throughout this period that the anti-Semites would blame FDR as being a pro-communist uh, sympathizer. And that's why we're pro-Nazi, pro-German, pro-Hitler. It's really just that we're, we're actually being very American because we're standing up to the, to the communists. Now, obviously, the truth of the matter is, is you can be anti-communist and anti-German and anti-Nazi. One doesn't, you know, they're, they're not you know, mutually exclusive. You can be against communism, which I am, and against Nazism, which I am as well. Those are not mutually exclusive. It's not one or the other. But I'm trying to figure out what sense it makes. Idiotically, he was anti-communist, but he was Okay, yes. And, and, and you're going to see this. And particularly when we get to our one of our next, what we're going to see is that many of these people who are claiming to be anti-communists were the biggest socialists. So for example, I'm going to skip ahead. I want to talk about one of the most rabid anti-Semites of the time, who was very, very influential, was someone named uh, Father Charles Coughlin. Charles Coughlin, you may have heard of. He was a Catholic priest who had a massive radio following. Tens of millions of people would listen to him every week. 
Now, he was an out-and-out socialist. He, although he actually backed FDR in 32, he would be, you know, terribly opposed to FDR. He wanted Coughlin advocated for the government takeover of the financial system. He was an out-and-out socialism, yet he would play the same game. He admired Hitler and was anti, you know, because of his anti-communistic, um, you know, uh, uh, policies and attitudes. So what's the answer? There's, it's, it's a cover for their anti-Semitism. That's what I believe the answer is. In other words, do they really care about communism? Maybe yes, maybe no, but it's really just a way of, you know, as, as you know, Winrod would say, I'm not anti-Jewish. I just hate all the communists and all the Jews are communists. So therefore, I hate all the Jews. You see that? It's, it's all a game, I believe. Um, Coughlin was a terrible anti-Semite. Um, after the 36 uh, election, Coughlin expressed overt sympathy for the fascist governments of Hitler and Mussolini. He believed Jewish bankers were behind the Russian Revolution. Again, he's a huge anti-communist. Backing the Jewish Bolshevism conspiracy theory. Um, after... Hinting on at it at some point, it was, I think it was in 30, late in the 30s, he insinuated that there should be violence against the Jews. And at that point, finally, the public radio, um, I think it was, what's the public radio in New York? W, WRC? WRC? I think it's WRC in New York. I don't know. I think it was WRC. I think that's who it was. CW? Oh, that's, that's what it is. So that's what the, 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 where, where he was, his primary broadcast. So they banned him. Now, mind you, there were then counter protests supporting Coughlin. And at one point, let me tell you, in, in, I mean, they had these rallies in, in Madison Square Garden, as we talked about two weeks ago, Madison Square Garden, for some reason, that's like, that's the place to be when you're protesting either pro or con, you know, for Nazi Germany, Madison Square Garden, they would put together when these huge rallies build up MSG, go look at the, uh, let's talk about that. Um, okay, that's going to really be the America First Committee, but they, they had quite a backing. Um, the rallies in, in 34, in, 19, in May 1934, the Friends of New Germany, which turned into the German-American Bund. That's what's going on over here. And these were, and these were, these were organizations had membership. This book claims the membership goes to the hundreds of thousands. I, I don't know if that's true, um, but these were people who were out and out supporters of Nazi. I believe Goering actually funded money to the German, the, the, the German Bund. So these people were being. It was indirect. The leadership of these organizations were always incompetent. So that, that's why they, they didn't, never really were too influential, at least according to this book. He argues they were big and they did make a little bit of noise, but they never were terribly influential because the organizers of like German American Bund and things like that were somewhat incompetent. One of the most influential anti-Semites of this period was an incredibly popular person, Charles Lindbergh. Okay, for, for, the, for us young folks, Right, we don't appreciate just how popular Lindbergh was. You know, the first aviator to fly across the Atlantic, the Spirit of St. Louis, um, which is featured prominently at the in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. You should go visit. It's a shout out for the D.C. area where I'm from. Um, he was a he was a celebrity. He was a wild celebrity, and he was a rabid anti-Semite. A rabid anti-Semite. Uh, and he'd be a, a spokesman for yet another anti-Semitic group called the America First Committee. Um, 
He writes, it is not difficult to understand why Jewish people desire the overthrow of the Nazi Germany. The persecution they suffered in Germany would be sufficient to make bitter enemies of any race. Again, I get, I'm not anti-Semitic. I would do the same thing. However, no person with a sense of dignity of mankind can condone the persecution of the Jewish race in Germany, okay? But no person of honesty and vision can look at their pro-war policy here today without seeing the dangers involved in such a policy, both for us and for them. Instead of agitating for war, the Jewish groups in this country should be opposing it in every possible way for the okay. Tolerance is a virtue that depends upon peace and strength. Histories show that it cannot survive war and deprivations. Um, And he goes on with his anti-Semitic diatribes. FDR would hated Lindbergh because Lindbergh would openly campaign against FDR, uh, hated FDR, and FDR hated him. Lindbergh was an isolationist first, anti-Semitic, anti-Semite second. He was a tremendous isolationist. He was a Hitler admirer. I believe Himmler gave him an iron cross in like 38 or 39, I believe. FDR to Morgenthau, his treasury secretary, he was Jewish, would say, if I should die tomorrow, I want you to know this. I am absolutely convinced Lindbergh is a Nazi. And he was right. I believe Lindbergh was a Nazi. Um, When I read Lindbergh's speech, I feel that it could not have been, this is FDR, could not have been better put if it had been written by Goebbels himself. What a pity that this youngster has completely abandoned his belief in our form of government and has accepted Nazi methods because apparently they are, they are efficient. After, once the United States enters the war, let's just fast forward a little bit. Once the United States enters the war, after Pearl Harbor, these groups get marginalized. The German Bund, the American First Committee, these groups who are pro-Nazi, um, who have all these you know, rallies in Madison Square Garden, you know, the, the American uh, public turns violently, obviously, against Germany and against pro-German sympathizers. So people like, you know, um, Coughlin and the like, you know, they lose their popularity after, you know, December 1941. Lindbergh tries to join the Air Force. Now, after all, he's the best American aviator. So naturally... He wants to. He wants to join the air. The air force doesn't exist. The air force is a part of. It's the part of the army at this point. It wouldn't be until after the war. It becomes its own. Its own. Um, its own branch of the military. But FDR wouldn't let him. FDR made sure um, through Henry Stimson as Secretary of War made sure that Lindbergh would not be accepted into the into the. Now what ended up happening is he worked as a civilian. A lot of this in the Pacific, they would bring Lindbergh in. He was actually involved in shooting down many of the Japanese. I think they count him for like 50 kills or something like some crazy number like that, because he was the best aviator, but they were all civilians. He was not, if I recall correctly, he was not um, enlisted. Um, who else were anti-Semites or were, if not anti-Semitic, what groups were not pro-Jewish? The Republican Party. Republican Party, they weren't out and out anti-Semitic, but these were the good old boys. They were the wasps, isolationists, they were nationalists. And I want this point to be, this is a very important point. Next week or whenever, at some point, I'm going to give my final opinions on FDR. What do I think about him? It is important to recognize, and I believe this to be true, is the alternative to FDR was not better. That's absolutely true. The Republicans, they weren't, like we talked about 
Wilkie and, and Alf Landon, they weren't anti-Semitic, but these were isolationists. Had they been, been elected, these are people who are not interested in letting Jews into the country. Thoughts, questions before we go on to our next point? He, I don't think so. He was in the Pacific. To go against, against Germany, yeah. Probably, I, I, don't, I don't know, all, I don't remember all the details, but I, I suppose, yeah. But he really, he, he would end up, he would live the long life. I think he died in 79 or 80 or something like that. I think he lives a long life, but he was a kook. He was a real, real, I think he got later on in life, again, I, before my time, but he ended, I think he got exposed, just how crazy he was. I think he had lived a bigamist life in Germany. He was involved in weird affairs. He, he was just a, uh, I, I think his instability and his craziness got exposed. Although Eisenhower kind of brought him back into the fold for a little bit. I think gave him the Purple Heart or something like that. Doc, did you have a question? The same nagging question. These rallies about the Security Party, did that influence Goldsville politics? Uh, doubtful. Well, yeah, the rallies themselves. Well, okay, let me answer that in two ways. This book argues that Germany sent some of these people from the, Amer the German Bund and the Amer America First to try to influence congressmen and senators, he argues, I forget the exact details of the story, at one point, the German spy was, had built quite a relationship with a senator, I, I forget his name, um, read this book, it didn't get very far. So in terms of actual German infiltration, very minimal. Were these voices heard? Yes. FDR, did it, did it, can you show a one-to-one -one because of that rally at MSG in 34, you know, Roosevelt did X, Y, or Z? I don't think you could be able to, to show that. However, FDR was very politically astute and these loud vocal anti-Semitic groups, I don't know if they had such a direct influence. However, it was kind of that those groups combined with the fact that even the average Joe in the United States tended to be isolationists. Maybe they weren't quite as anti-Semitic and quite as nationalistic as those groups, but the majority of people absolutely had isolationist tendencies. And I would say more as a chain reaction, did these groups influence the Republican Party who FDR was very sensitive to? Yes. You know, what exactly, you know, can you, can you show a linear uh, progression from their activism towards FDR's policies, hard to say, but again, they, they, what they do is they highlight the extreme, extreme portion of what actually was a pretty universal attitude of isolationism. Does that, does that answer your question? Okay. What's that? We're working towards the answer. All right. In September of 1939, Germany invades Poland. And World War II begins. I, for those who were here on Shabbos at the explanatory service Saturday, uh, last Saturday, I, I spoke about my grandmother's recipes, some of her experiences. And if you, if you recall, I brought up an interesting thing, how she writes that on September 1st, and she grew up in Poland, on September 1st, her father and all the men of her household already go into hiding. They would flee to the forests and they would return back to their shtetl on the 7th, later that week, 
But I found that so remarkable. Literally the day that Germany invades Poland, you know, the Jews knew in Poland what that meant. Again, this is before final solution. There are no concentration. I mean, there are no extermination camps, but Nazi persecution was clearly understood and clearly understood by the Polish Jews. And when, Nazi, when the Nazis invade Poland in 1939, Poland was the most Jewish country. I believe three and a half million Jews were living in Poland at the time, including virtually my entire uh, family who would be wiped out by, by the Nazis. Um, the United States, as we mentioned, they're isolationists. However, after September of 1939, and Great Britain declares war and France declare war, the United States, led by FDR, and this is an important point, led by FDR, moved closer to war. So, whereas up to this point, the United States had passed a series of neutrality acts, a whole series of neutrality acts, which made it illegal for the United States to provide any kind of arms or weapons or, or you know, supplies, war-making supplies to any belligerent nation. You know, that was, that was the, the neutrality act because the United States didn't want to get drawn into any war. So after 1939, um, FDR starts pushing back against those neutrality acts. Now, again, the Republicans don't want to hear that. And, and by the way, many of the Democrats don't want to hear that. But FDR pushes towards that. So beginning shortly after, in, in, even in the end of September of 39, he proposes the, the cash carry, if you recall, your, I'm sorry to be lecturing you on your World, World War II history, but you recall Roosevelt amends or pushes through, um, he, he goes around the legislature, he opens up the cash and carry policy, which he argues probably was unconstitutional, but he argued didn't require legislative um, uh, backing. He went ahead and he did the cash carry policy, which basically opened up for Great Britain and France, potentially the Soviet Union, to go ahead and be able to buy war material, but on a cash and carry basis. You have to pay in cash, nothing could be on loan, and you have to be the one to transport it. We're not sending it across the dangerous Atlantic, which was infested with German submarines. By March 41, the uh, FDR has his famous speech where he declares the United States needs to be an arsenal of democracy. And the Lend-Lease, the, excuse me, cash carry policy gets updated to the Lend-Lease policy, if you recall, which allowed Great Britain to go ahead and get the United States arms, arsenal of democracy, you know, and you wouldn't even have to pay for it. FDR, we've talked about, was a brilliant communicator. So he, if you, you might recall, he developed what was called the fireside chat. Everyone remember the fireside chat, which was very popular. You know, to us, it seems antiquated, but no president before him did that. Presidents before FDR, the Hoovers, the Coolidges, you know, the, these presidents were abstractions. Your average Joe in Kansas never saw or heard of the president, except if they read the paper. When, who, when FDR starts his fireside chats, everyone gathered around the fireside, turned on the radio, and FDR spoke to them. And people will tell you again, before my time, FDR had a way of speaking. You felt he was speaking to you. And he was very persuasive. He was very polished that way. 
he would give when it came to when he was advocating for his lend-lease policy, he gave, he, he had such a way of speaking and communicating. It was very effective. He said, imagine your friend's house is on fire. And he says, hey, you know, can I borrow your garden hose to put out the fire? So you, you care about your friend, you know, you're not going to say yes, but it's got to be $50. You have to pay me for it up front. You say, sure, use my garden hose, take it. When you're done with it, bring it back. And if anything happens to it, you'll replace it. Right? Of course. And which is a very, of course, who would argue with that? Right? We're good friends. You know, Richard, you need to borrow my fire hose, to, my hose to put out a fire? Sure. I, you know, I'm not going to charge you for it. We're buddies. And that was his example. He had like these homespun analogies that really resonated. And that really was the Lend-Lease Act. You know, if Great Britain wants to, you know, borrow some of our Navy destroyers, some of our boats, some of our guns, borrow them. If they get damaged, you'll replace them, but we're not going to charge you for it. And again, he bypassed Congress to get these things passed. Probably was unconstitutional, but he got it done. In the summer of 1941, the United States, Germany is, is uh, continuing um, its war path. The United States, for the first time, and I believe the only time in its history, uh, instituted a peacetime draft in the summer of 1941. Of course, FDR, who was, a, as we've talked about, was a great double talker, a great double talker, you know, said, this is just, you know, your boys are not going overseas. Don't worry. Now, mind you, the United States military, we talked about, was complete, was pitifully small at this time. Poland's Navy was bigger than the United States' Navy. Poland is landlocked. <laughs> you know, Poland's Navy was bigger than the United States' Navy. When these soldiers who were drafted in 41, when they would be, you know, mustering and, and, you know, training, they didn't have enough rifles for these guys. They used to practice with broomsticks. Real story. That's how, that's how you know, the United States really had to, you know, um, up its game. We'll end with the, the last you know, one of the great tragedies of American history, Jewish history. You know, we talked about different anti-Semitic groups of the period. Were they influential? Maybe yes, maybe no. The greatest and mo the most influential anti-Semitic group we've talked about in the past, but I want to spend a little bit more time just in the next moment or two, was the State Department. The State Department were out-and-out anti-Semites. It's important to keep in mind we talked two weeks ago and we talked about FDR's domestic affairs. We talked about the New Deal, remember, and, and how that worked. And with the, with the New Deal, many agencies in the government, many people within the government, you know, were replaced or updated because of the New Deal. What agency was completely unimpacted by the New Deal? The State Department. The State Department has nothing to do with domestic affairs. So the State Department was still filled with all the old good old boys and cronies and anti-Semites from decades past that had been lingering there. After the fall of France in June of 1940, France falls to Germany like that. Many people suspected that, I mean, there were people who were bewildered. France falls to the Germans without even putting up a fight. Naturally, what do people say? There must have been a fifth column. There must have been spies helping the Germans. Otherwise, France would have put up a bigger fight. Now, the truth of the matter is, France just was inept. That, that's the real answer. You know, were there spies 
doubtful or certainly didn't cause, that's not the reason why Germany overruns France. It's because France was inept. But this fear of spies, of infiltration, now becomes to become, now starts to become a talking point in the United States. And many in the State Department begin echoing this concern of, if you recall, FDR had been increasing, had been allowing the quotas of, of Jewish Germans to you know, be filled. Well, now after 1939 and Germany's at war, and although the United States isn't yet at war, we're certainly allied with Great Britain. Well, now there are talks of, wait a minute, are we going to take these Jewish refugees? Maybe some of them are spies for the Germans. Think of that twisted logic, right? We can't allow the Jews because they're spying for the Germans. Now, in truth, the history will show there was one refugee out of all the you know tens of thousands that would end up coming, a guy named Paul Borchard, Borchard is the only you know refugee who'd spy for the Germans. But this fear and concern was very, very real. And it, it was pa- paralyzing almost in the State Department. At this time, the State Department, uh, FDR brings in to as the assistant, one of the main assistants in the State Department, we're going to end with this, one of the, the real villains, I believe, and what most historians will tell you, the great villain of, in all of American Jewish history is Breckenridge Long, Yamach Shemo Breckenridge Long was from an old... Um, his great-great-grandfather was, a, was vice president under, I forget, but, uh, you know, influential family. Breckenridge Long was a terrible anti-Semite, um, and he was a tremendous isolationist, and he did everything that he could at, from this point moving towards the end of the war to stand in the way of any kind of Jewish refugees making it, you know, even though FDR had opened it up. Um, in an interdepartment memo he circulated in, Ju- in June 1940, he would write the following when it came to issuing visas to these Jews trying to get out. He said, we can delay and effectively stop for a temporary period of indefinite length the number of immigrants into the United States. We can do this sim- by simply advising our consuls to put every obstacle in the way and to require, require additional evidence and to resort to various administrative devices which would postpone and postpone and postpone the granting of visas. And under Breckenridge Long, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of Jews who could have entered the United States under the quota system would go to their deaths because of, of Long. He was an out-and-out anti-Semite and, um, and he's rotting in hell somewhere. Um, by 1940, you know, after September of 39, it's unclear when FDR sees the United States is heading to war. And FDR views himself as the savior of the American people. And at some point after that, he decides he needs to run for a third term. Beginning in 1940, and he's going to get elected by a wide margin. Um, we'll end with this, you know, to, as a prelude to, to our discussion next week. In June 1941, Hitler invades Russia. Hitler invades Russia. It's at this time, Hitler invades Russia in June of 1941, where right behind the Nazi warmacht, as they march through that summer and into the fall and then into the disastrous winter in front of Moscow, 
right behind the Nazi warmacht as they marched to, to um, as they marched to Moscow. So Hitler sends, you know, based on Himmler's uh, orders, the Einsatzgruppen. This is when we have the beginning of the mobile killing units. This is where the Holocaust begins. Really, in its in its um, the Holocaust can really be divided into two two phases. You have the mobile killing units of the Einsatzgruppen, which followed the Russian advance or the, the German advance into Russia. And then you have beginning after the, the Wannsee conference in January of 42, it would be till January 42, where the final solution is really put into an industrial strength. And the industrial killing centers, Auschwitz, Birkenau, and, and others, when, when Jews really began become uh, deported, mass extermination begins. The million dollar question is, when did FDR begin to know about these atrocities? What did he do about it? What could he have done about it? That, God willing, we'll talk about next week. And obviously, sensitively, that's going to be the most difficult and painful part of this entire story. Sorry, we're in a couple minutes over. Uh, thank you all for coming. God willing, we are going to have a part four next week. If anyone has any thoughts or questions, I'm here to stick around. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast, or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.